Let's read from the Word of God. Turn in the New Testament to the first letter of John. 1 John chapter 3, reading from the beginning of the chapter. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we shall be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that we might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. As we expound the word of God and preach the scriptures week by week, we often speak of the trials and the hardships that are the lot of the Christian. We think of the Saviour's warning, in this world you will have tribulation. And we must be reminded of these difficult things, so that we not be surprised or downcast on Julie when we encounter them. Hard times will come. And it's necessary as a preacher and a pastor that I warn you and seek to prepare you for difficult times. Seems sometimes Christians are surprised when circumstances are hard, when they encounter difficulties. God's word warns us that's how it will be. And yet we mustn't be imbalanced in our view of the Christian life. We could slip into thinking that the Christian life is nothing but a battle, nothing but a series of struggles, and it'll never be any different. Because the truth is also that the Christian life is one of great blessing, both now and in the future. And as we take account of the trials and the hardships, we must not lose sight also of the blessings that God promises his people. 
Otherwise, we are liable to be overwhelmed in the hard times. And we forget the blessings that God promises and provides. Now, these may not be the kind of blessings that the world can understand. The world may look on at Christians tried and tested and conclude what a sad bunch of people they are, what difficulties they have. And they're not able to see or to understand the blessings that God provides. They're not blessings that the world can measure or appreciate. But that doesn't for one moment mean that those blessings are not real and not precious to God's people. And in particular, as the people of God, uh, we are particularly uh, oriented to the future. Christians are people who can look to the future, not with fear and trembling, but with godly confidence. In fact, the Christian is the only person who can look to the future with confidence. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But of course, as Paul goes on to show in that great 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, it isn't only for this life, but for the Christian, the best is still to come. And we find something of the riches that the Lord provides for his people, the riches of the Christian life in the present and in the future, set out in those verses that we read from 1 John chapter 3 uh, earlier in our service. Here are words designed to encourage God's people because John was writing uh, to Christians who experienced Trials and hardships, you were beginning to have to face persecution. And so these are words of encouragement. I want to focus in particularly uh, on 1 John 3 uh, and the opening three verses. And we're thinking uh, this morning of privileges and prospects. Privileges and prospects. Here are truths about the Christian life, about you if you belong to the Lord, to lift your heart, privileges and prospects. The first thing we see in these verses from the Word of God is our present status. Our present status. John begins uh, the chapter by thinking about what as Christians we already have. Uh, And these are important. Uh, He begins the chapter with a little word that unfortunately the NIV uh, leaves out. Behold. See. To the ESV, there's see at the beginning of the chapter. We shouldn't leave it out because it's drawing our attention to something. John is saying, look, Here is something important, something that is worth considering carefully. 
see the great privilege that already you enjoy if you are a Christian. It's not just something in the future. It's something we have right here and now. Look, the privilege as a result of the love of God that we should be called children of God. That's the status that the Christian has right now in this present world. That we are called children of God. And John's taken us right to the heart of the great transformation that Christ works in the heart and life of a sinner. It's rooted, of course, in what the Bible calls the new birth. John refers to that right at the end of the previous chapter. Remember, as I've said, the Bible writers didn't write in chapters. He just simply wrote on from the end of what we think of as chapter 2 into what we call chapter 3. At the end of chapter 2, he speaks of those who are born of him, born of God. And that's what is needed for sinners like you and me to receive this privilege, to be brought into the kingdom of God. That's how Jesus spoke of it to Nicodemus, you remember, in John chapter 3. Verse 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, To us, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So this spiritual, this new birth, this birth from above, that's another way you could translate it is needed if we are to have this status. And so in order to be children of God, to be brought into the family, into the kingdom of God, we must experience this being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where once we were dead, now we are alive. Could there be a higher privilege than that? Could God give us anything greater than this status we enjoy of being his children? Think what you were before you were converted. You may have been raised in a Christian home. You may have received Bible instruction from your earliest days. But we mustn't lose sight of the fact, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath. Or later on, Ephesians 2, in verse 19, he called us foreigners and aliens. We weren't in the family. We were outsiders. We did not belong to God's family. And then think of the contrast. Now we are children of God. And there's no doubt about that status. John here is writing in the language of certainty 
and conviction. We are called children of God, and that is what we are. He's telling us we don't need to be in any doubt about our status now as God's children. That is what we are. And in this life, surely, we're only beginning to take in the the magnitude of what the Lord has conferred on us. We'll have eternity to think about it, and we won't have exhausted it. We're only beginning to grasp this precious truth. We're children of God. As Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Turn those words over in your mind and ponder them. The Bible says, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God. You're an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. We can hardly imagine the, the greatness of the transformation from a sinner dead in sins to a child of God. That is our status And this isn't some make-believe or some uh, fiction that God pretends we're his children, although we're not really. This is the truth about our status. One famous Bible commentator, F.F. Bruce, puts it, when God calls, his call is effectual. People and things are what God calls them. And when God calls you his child, you are his child. You are part of his family. But how is that possible for sinners? How is it possible that sinners like you and like me should be given this status as children of God? If we were aliens and foreigners, how now are we God's children? And John gives us the answer. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. He takes it all back to the love of the Father. And even in the translation, I think, you can, you can hear John's wonder and amazement as he writes these things. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. We can hardly take in such a love to people who deserved his judgment. It passes our experience And it excludes any idea of our deserving this position. If it depends on such love, there's nothing we can contribute to it. We thought a bit about this uh, last Lord's Day morning. It's not of works. It's not by any contribution you or I can ever make. It's all because of the love of God. 
love that's experienced in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because again, God's love takes us to Christ. There's the proof that God loves us. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love that the Father has lavished on us is a love that has bought us at the price of the blood of Christ. It's a love that has made us alive in Christ, that has forgiven our sin, that has brought us into the family of God, that has conferred on us the status of children. God has given this love to us. The NIV has lavished on us, and that's a good way to put it. It is a love that God has shown and will continue to show. The very very tense of the verb, as John writes it here, tells us, he'll not love us today and take it back tomorrow or next week or next year. He has loved us and he continues to love us and he always will. Love is lavished on us, not just a little, not just the bare minimum that you need to be saved. And the Bible uses that kind of language of God's love. Romans 5 and verse 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't that lift our hearts to think that God pours his love into us. It is rich and abundant and full. It is everything we will ever need. And God has given it to us freely at the price of the blood of Jesus. Because the price has been paid. You cannot buy this love. What kind of love is it that you could buy? It's freely given. It's the grace we thought about in Ephesians 2 uh, and verse 8 last week. By grace you've been saved. And so here it is love that is lavished on us, is poured out upon us. Now, to the world that's a mystery. Uh, And John reminds us that the world doesn't know us. And isn't that true? Isn't that increasingly the case? That the world around us is baffled by Christians and really doesn't understand us. There perhaps was a day when unconverted people in general, at least in this part of the world, knew what the Christian faith was about. They knew what a Christian was. They may not have wanted it for themselves, but they'd some idea what Christians were about, less and less is that the case. We just mystify the world. We, we baffle them. The, the things that we delight in and the things we do, the world looks at that and thinks, what are they doing? The world doesn't know us. And the, the reason for the kind of misunderstanding and surely increasingly mockery and opposition And for some of our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world, the persecution is because they don't know God. 
And they're separated from him and from his truth. They're in darkness and they look at us in the light and they don't understand. They they don't know what we're doing and they don't know what we're talking about unless the Lord opens their eyes. And more and more don't we experience that. The world is baffled by us. And Jesus warned us, of course, uh, that this is how it will be because that's how they treated him. And don't be surprised if that's how the world responds to you. Jesus tells us, John 15, 21, they'll, they'll treat you in this way. He talked about the hardships, the difficulties, the opposition. They'll treat you in this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. And if they don't know God, they will not understand his people. And we have to be prepared to face more of that. But John begins, as we said, in the present, our present status. This is what we have now. We're children of God. That is what we are. Praise the Lord. Our present status. But then John goes on to write about our future hope. Our future hope. We've often said, and I'll keep saying, for the Christian, the best really is still to come. Now he repeats our present certainty. Now we are children of God, verse 2. But there's more. There's more to come. What we will be has not yet been made known. There are wonders, there are glories still to come for the children of God. And here is a very clear, encouraging promise of future glory. Of course, there's much that we don't understand about what's ahead of us as Christians. There's much we can't understand. In 1 Corinthians 15, we've quoted already from that chapter, with the hope of resurrection. And yet, when we think about the resurrection and getting new bodies and so forth, there's so much uh, that we really don't understand. And there's so much the Bible hasn't explained to us. And perhaps one of the main reasons for that is, if the Lord explained it to us, we wouldn't understand it. It's so outside our experience and beyond what we can imagine If the Lord told us, we just wouldn't know what he meant. It'd be too wonderful and too new and too strange for us. And hence Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Don't be surprised if there's much about our future hope as a Christian that you don't understand. In this life, nobody does. And yet, it is still sure and certain. In all that John writes here, there is no hint of doubt or maybe or possibly. He writes in terms of certainty. He says, we know. We know that when he appears, certain things will happen. There may be much we don't understand but we know with confidence in the Lord that there are things that will happen. When he appears we shall be like him. 
There's the great certainty of our Christian hope. Much we can look forward to as Christians. We may think and look forward to being with brothers and sisters, loved ones who are with the Lord. And that's a great hope to have. But that isn't the greatest thing the Christian hopes for. This is it. When he appears, we shall be like him. When the Lord Jesus returns in all his glory, that will mark the end of God's saving work in us. We'll have reached the goal that we've longed for, the days when we struggled and we've fallen and we regret it and we repent and we long for a day when that won't happen anymore and it's coming. We will be fully changed into the image of the Lord. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being changed into the same image. Our being ongoing and it will keep going on while you're in this world until the day John's writing about when Christ appears and we will be like him like him what does that mean what will it mean to be like the Lord Jesus Christ one of the things it means is that we will have glorified, resurrected bodies like his body. Paul writes in Philippians 3.21 of Christ who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Free of the weaknesses and the illnesses, and the decline and the decay that we experience physically in this world. It'll be no more. We'll have glorified resurrection bodies. We'll be like him. And of course, spiritually, we will be like him. We will be free of all sin, all taint, all pollution, all guilt, all be gone, and the work of sanctification will be complete. We will be holy. We will, as Paul writes in Colossians 3, we'll appear with him in glory. We'll share the very glory of the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine that? Do you believe that? That a day will come when you share the very glory of Jesus and all his perfection and his radiance and his splendor, and you will have a share in that. The Lord will share his glory with his people. And it will be a result of the transforming vision of Christ. We shall see him as he is. And to see him as he is will transform us. Now, of course, We see him with the eyes of faith, don't we? We can't literally or physically see Jesus. He's ascended into heaven. But when we see him in his glory at the last day, at his return, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. We will look on the glorified Christ 
And in our glorified bodies, we will be as like him as it's possible for finite creatures to be. We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. What a joyful prospect is ahead of the believer. We'll be with the Lord, body and soul, for all eternity in the glories and wonders of the new creation. Body and soul are saved. Body and soul will share in the glory of Christ's people. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. Our present status, our future hope. And you may think we'll stop there. John has, has said all he has to say, but he says one thing more because he speaks of our daily response. Our daily response. These great truths of our Christian hope, the things we can look forward to as the Lord's people, aren't given to us to provoke speculation or argument, certainly not division among Christians. It's sad when they do. They're given for a practical purpose. They're given to help us in our discipleship of this glorious Savior. What we will be and what we will enjoy at that day has implications for us now in the present. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. We're not to say to ourselves, well, one day I will be perfect, I will be like Christ, so it really doesn't matter what I do now. I can simply sit back and relax and take it easy and live however I want because one day God will make me perfectly holy. John won't allow us to draw that false conclusion. Rather, he says, because one day the work of sanctification will be perfect and complete, that should stir us. This knowledge of the glory to come is a stimulus to holy living now in the present. The very opposite of sitting back casual and curless. It stirs us. If the Lord's going to do this, I want to progress as much as possible now in this life and be as like the Lord Jesus Christ I'm going to meet as I can be. We have this hope in him, in Christ, in the Lord Jesus, and in his finished work, a living hope, as we read in 1 Peter 1. And that touches your whole life. That is to shape everything you are. Here is something that applies to every Christian. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. The call goes out again and again in God's word, be holy as I am holy. You have it in the Old Testament, you have it in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1.16, for example. And there are no shortcuts 
This is a life of devotion to the Lord and studying and obeying his word. How do we become holy people? We're told in 1 Peter 1.22, we purify ourselves by obeying the truth. We hear the word and we take it in and by the Holy Spirit's help and enabling, we put it into practice. And we grow in likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, we don't do it by ourselves. The Holy Spirit must enable us. And he does. And we have the pattern and the the inspiration in Jesus, don't we? When we're engaged in some task, how good it is to see it well done. And there's a target to aim for. And we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as he is pure, John writes, then we seek purity. Think of Jesus. Think of the Savior you serve and love and the Savior you're going to meet and see. And that should stir you to pursue holiness. The goal's in front of you. The pattern is there in Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit, God will enable you step by step, little by little, to reproduce that likeness. And if you love this Savior, in whom the love of God has flowed into your heart, you will love to become more and more like him. And there's the test of whether we really believe these things or not. Do we really believe we're children of God? Do we really believe one day we will be like our Savior when we see him face to face? If we do, then there will be the longing and the desire for holiness. Yes, it will be imperfect on this side of the Lord's return. But we will long for it and we'll seek it. And by God's grace, we will make progress. Until the heavens open and Christ appears. And those who belong to him are raised up in glory. And we will be like him. For we'll see him as he is. Is that your hope as you sit here today? Are you able to say, yes, by God's grace here today, I'm a child of God. I don't deserve it, but that's what God has made me. Can you say, I'm looking forward to a day when I'll see Christ face to face and I'll be like him? Can you say that? Can you say, I want to be more like him now? I want to be more holy. I want to reflect his image more faithfully until one day the work is complete. John's words are full of encouragement for the Christian. Encouragement in who we are. Encouragement in what we will be one day. And encouragement to seek the Lord faithfully here and now, by his grace. May we have this hope in Christ, by the grace of a great God and Savior. And may we see each other in that glory when Christ comes back.